churches, the letters of the churches in Revelation. Uh, the catchy title here is to build up to some, some, some suspense, but it's accurate. The uh, church at Satan's throne, uh, that's what Jesus calls it, and I figured that's good enough for um, my title. Uh, it is a, uh, another one of the seven churches. It is one that is very similar. I chose it particularly because of its similarity to the church at Ephesus. Uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, the church, church at Pergamum was, uh, had a better history than, than Ephesus. It was a kingdom capital several hundred years before the, the writing of the book of Revelation. And uh, it had lost its luster a bit, and, and, and Ephesus had sort of taken over its, its uh, 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 role, if you will, in the, in the Roman world. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about the history there, but I want to go right into, into the scripture. This is Revelation chapter 12 um, and 13. Excuse me, Revelation 2, chapters 12 and 13. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwelled. This is a church in a major city, over 100,000 population, with an ancient history, and it was a place that was full of pagan worship. The... Uh, the reality is that nobody really knows what the throne of Satan is in this uh, passage. There are three possibilities. I'll get to those in a minute. Uh, the first thing is in the pattern of the letters in, in the book of Revelation, they follow a certain flow. And there's always the introduction, and it comes from, and it's to, who it's to, the angel at the church of Pergamon. Now, the angel is not an angelic being. Uh, in Greek, the word angel means messenger. And the word literally is angelos. That's where we get the word angel from. It's directly from the Greek. But it means messenger. It could be a human messenger or it can be an angelic being. Many times in Scripture, uh, an angel will come to bear the message of God to his people or make pronouncements. Other times, a messenger might be a person bearing a message. In this case, the angel of the church is the messenger of the church, not an angelic being. In other words, John... The writer of the book of Revelation encountered uh, Jesus in a vision on the island of Patmos when he was a prisoner in exile on this island, not too far off the Turkish coast, not too far from the city of Pergamon. And in that vision, he was given these letters to send to these seven churches. And uh, in a minute, I'll show you a map of those churches again. But the fact is that this... this this, this particular angel is not an angelic being. This is the, the messenger, God's messenger to the church that's serving in the town of city of Pergamum. So the, uh, the first thing that comes out of this is this image, and the next section of the letter is the, the one describing the one giving the message. Christ is describing himself. In this case, out of his mouth is the sword. Now, this may bring up imagery you know from the New Testament, but first let's look in Revelation itself. As I've said before, when you study 
the book of Revelation, it's like a graduate degree in the Bible. It, the imagery, the, the subjects are all a summary of a future which is not yet, some of it's not yet taken place, and it depends totally upon previous scripture to have any clue about what it's about. Well, we can do this in this very book, because if you go back to, to Revelation 1.6, in his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. This is John describing what he saw in Jesus. And again, this imagery of the sword associated with his mouth would be the word. His word divides. It separates. Uh, the, the Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, speaks to this directly. The writer of Hebrews says this, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the, as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So there's no secrets with God. The Lord Jesus can separate and parts, and as the, as the great physician can do surgery on the soul, if you will. He knows it all, he does it all, he can separate, and his word separates. And we're going to see this again later in this very small section of Scripture, the sword. But it's an introduction to that, and we'll see it again. But let's talk about the city of Pergamum for a minute. There's a map here which will show the seven churches. Pergamum, you'll see, is the very top of the map. And I'll slide out of the way so everybody can see it. We looked at the church at Sardis and the church at Ephesus and now Pergamum. That's a, roughly 100 miles from Ephesus up to Pergamum. Pergamum does not have a port. Ephesus had a port and Smyrna has a port. Port cities tend to be cities of trade. I don't think, think I mentioned that. Nancy, Nancy uh, reminded me, I didn't mention last week, that the port at Ephesus was filling full of silt from the, the river that flows there. And now the, 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 the uh, Aegean Sea is like five miles away from, from, the, from the old uh, remnants of Ephesus that are still there. But Smyrna is actually a huge port city now in modern Turkey. It goes by the name of Izmir. The city of Pergamum, as the city next to it now, the ruins, Bergama is what it's called now in Turkey. The city of Pergamum was the capital city of an ancient kingdom, the kingdom of Pergamum. And it controlled basically all of this area. Now, this is important because as we discuss different things about the city, it was will it willingly... Uh, gave in to Rome when Rome started to take over. Which, in the way Romans operated, that's probably a smart move. Because if he didn't give in, they were going to squash you like a cockroach. And they decided not to do that. And then they were rewarded for that. So they were actually made the provincial capital of Asia, the Roman province of Asia, which is this whole area here. And ultimately, Ephesus was a nicer city. So the Roman governor decided to live there instead. So what you have here is a little bit of... Uh, uh, animosity between the two cities. Which one was greater? Now, they both were rich in um, architecture, rich in pagan temples, rich in all sorts of things. And um, the, um, 
the struggle that, that both cities have and, and what we saw, with the, the difference, I think, with our knowledge is that the book of Acts covered a lot about the church in Ephesus because Paul was there for three years in his third missionary journey. Uh, Luke was there. He wrote. They wrote a lot about the city. A lot of the things that I mentioned last week uh, about the demon possessions and the healings and this kind of thing uh, would have been similar in this this massive pagan center of, of, of worship. And so when, the, when the, the, the throne of Satan is mentioned here uh, by Jesus, exactly what is, is he referring to? There's three basic possibilities. And uh, we can skip ahead. I want to show what, what, this, what Pegasus looks like, to, the Pergamon, sorry, looks like today. Um, there's a picture here. This is uh, the Acropolis. They had Acropolis. Pergamon was a very powerful city, and their city was built originally primarily up on this hilltop. This is full of temples today, ruins of temples, and many other things. And the, city, the modern city is down below all that. But you can see a, quite a stronghold. And, and back in the day, having a, a stronghold like that would make you impervious to enemies attacking and conquering you. So it was a very strong place to fortify. Uh, up there are temples, and these are remains below. There's temples all over the place. It's all ruins. Uh, today, mostly. And uh, there's three possibilities, like I mentioned. This one is actually a reproduction made in Germany. This is what is known as the altar of Zeus. Now, Zeus was the king of gods in the Athenian uh, tradition. And uh, all sorts of imagery around the edges there these are, and it goes all the way around the back, that wrap where the, all the, the carved images are. Those are all figures of the, the, of the gods, the, the, all the gods of, of, of pagan Athens and, and Athenian belief fighting giants. And the altar itself is, is a platform at the top up there, not like an altar like we normally think. This is more like a throne, if you will. This is the throne of Zeus, and it's a that's a full-scale uh, model of it. Rather than look at some old broken stones, I thought this would be more illustrative of what it originally looked like. This is another uh, set of ruins, another possibility. This was a, it's a huge tourist event, uh, if you will. People came from all over the world to go to this place. Uh, this was the home of the Temple of Asclepius. This is the Greek to me. Uh, this is the Asclepion Temple. I can't, can't even say it. Anyway, Asclepios was the pagan god of healing. And this was a place, this was, this was, if you can, I can't even imagine what this looked like, but that's a, literally a theater, and the temple was there, and it was a spa, a theater, a place of healing, also a medical school, and people came from all over the world to be healed. And part of the healing process was sleeping there, and then your dreams you had were interpreted, and then proper medicines were applied or whatever the thing. But the biggest thing that was done there is that you would sleep in the temple, and there would be a number of non-venomous, rather large, domesticated snakes crawling about while you slept on the floor. I'm not making this up. And if a snake touched you, 
that was representative as of Asclepius, I can't even say his name, um, imparting healing to you. So uh, the great healer in, in heaven would, might see this as pretty satanic in its in its approach of worshiping uh, healing snakes. Now. Uh, the next picture here, I, I have a, this is the Greek imagery of this actual, uh, ancient Greek imagery of Asclepios. And um, that's his staff, and there's, there's one of the snakes. Now, you might be thinking, boy, isn't it great we don't have this kind of pagan imagery today, and we don't have to worry about this kind of thing, but the, you, you may have seen this sign. Guess where it comes from? The pagan god of healing rather than the great physician. Isn't that interesting? This was chosen to represent the healing arts, so to speak. I just passed that on, uh, this ambulance picture, but uh, it gives you a, a, a picture of a place that is steeped in pagan worship. There's one other possibility, which there's no picture for, but... Uh, there were also, amongst all these, these temples and other sacred buildings, etc., Pergamum, I mentioned earlier, had given in to the Romans. This is where this becomes important. They had also been a leader in, as Rome developed, or developed, as, uh, depends on how you look at it, Roman emperors tended to like to be worshipped. It used to be in the old days, when they died they were worshipped, but now they wanted to be worshipped while they were living. And so they built temples to worship the Roman emperor. And since Pergamon was so friendly to Rome and wanted to do well in Rome's eyes, they were a leader in worshiping a living human being. There was one thing in ancient or early Christianity that called, would more likely be caused to be um, executed than not, and that is the failure to worship the Roman emperor. And the Christians had overwhelmingly... Um, Thought that. And in fact, in this letter, what does Jesus say? They are living, literally, dwell is the word, and that means permanent residence in a place where Satan permanently dwells um, in, the, in the home of the, the, the throne of Satan, if you will. And this church stood true and fast. Many of the, many of the letters that are written of the seven um, have commendation in them. They start with, you have done well here, but you're not doing well here. This is one of those churches. Two of the churches didn't have any, any condemnation, all, only praise. Uh, Pergamum is one that has both. In this case, in spite of the throne of Satan, they have stood true to the word. That's to their credit. But in, in Revelation 2.14, verses 15 and 15, 14 and 15, but... I have a few things against you, because uh, you uh, have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now what's all this about? A little bit of Old Testament. I'll summarize this because it, there's several chapters of it. 
um, in the book of Numbers. And what happened was, you may have heard of Balaam's donkey, uh, which had to speak to Balaam, because Balaam was so thick-headed, he was intent on doing something God did not want him to do. What was that thing? And what is the teaching of Balaam? Very interesting. Balaam was a prophet for hire. He could be bought to do certain things, such as prophesy the future or influence events. And he must have been good at it because the king of Moab had seen Israel coming. They had just obliterated the Amorites. And he knows, he's looking at the map, and he's going, we're next. And so he goes and says, I want you to put a curse on these people so they won't get me. And he doesn't want to do it, and they keep offering more money. God tells him not to do it, and eventually he tries it three times, and it doesn't work. So, he goes to plan B. This is uh, Balaam I'm talking about here. He goes to plan B. Plan B was that, you know what, if we can't curse them, how about we trip them up? How about if we can get them to sin and get them to break fellowship with, the, with their God, then they will lose their power. That's what the teaching of Balaam was. So how do they do it? The age-old way. Get men to do what they ought not do with women that, that are not their wives, and have it all done in a pagan festival. And a large number of Israelite men did just that. And the Lord judged them harshly. 24,000 of them lost their lives. Eventually, Balaam himself lost his life. But you can see what this teaching is. What goes on in the pagan culture of Athens and Rome? The age-old practice of men and women having relationships they ought not have. And what was the thing that would trip up a believer more than not? It was that practice. So, the Nicolaitans I mentioned last week were similar, very similar, in that they believed that because we were saved by the grace of God and could be forgiven, that we could do anything we darn well please, and he would forgive us. So those two things taken together have gotten a number of people in this church to participate in things which are unbecoming of a believer in Christ. Is that making sense? It's a G-rated version. I'm trying to point a picture, paint a picture of what was going on in this church that the Lord Jesus is calling out. And uh, this is, in modern terms, worldliness. It is, it is not making judgments based upon scriptural truth in our personal conduct. We don't have... This is not something that I, I am saying happens here to any degree. I'm not, talk, not, not talking about individually, but as this church had a group of people that were part, partaking of this that were proud of it. And nothing in the church was done about it. That's the issue here. What does a church do when these things are taking place? There's an interesting word in Greek. It's called ecclesia. It's where we get the word ecclesiastic from. That's a churchy word, isn't it? But it's easy to figure out when you know a little bit of Greek, which I know very little. It's, two, it's a compound word, ecclesia. Ek means out, like ex in Latin, example. Um, ek, out. Ecclesia 
is called, called, to be called, kaleo, called. So out called, called out, the called out ones, the church. You're called out of this world, right? When you are called to Christ, you are called out of this world. Not that we don't live here, but we aren't those people any longer. And this church had decided they could be both. It's a very, very difficult fine line to make when you think you can be part of the world out there and also a part of this world in here. Now, I'm not saying we live in the world. It's not that we can't be in the world, just like the, Paul used the word for flesh. We're in the body, but we're not of the flesh. We're not of that world. We are different. We should stand out. We should be contrary to the world. Countercultural is the popular modern term. The culture itself is going to influence how you behave and act. Uh, and this city is no different. But, as like I said earlier, this, this church had stood against the pagan worship, but we're compromising on behavior. And the, the word stumbling block comes to mind. There's many scriptures that speak to this. Um, 2 Peter 2.15 There are stains and blemishes reviling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery, they never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, and he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, when a church faces this kind of thing amongst it, it must deal with it. Uh, Jesus speaks to this in Matthew chapter 18. Reading here, verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins... Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, not part of fellowship any longer. This happens to be, in my own personal experience, the biggest failing of churches generally, and that is church discipline. Now, this is not about disagreements among church members. This is about active behavior that is not addressed by the body itself. Uh, I've seen cases, I know of, of cases, where this has gone because it's so uncomfortable, to be honest, so uncomfortable to deal personally, with a brother's issues or sister's issues in the family. Because we talked last week about the love we should have for one another. If we have that love, ought we not be concerned with a brother or sister that has strayed from uh, 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 a, a, a relationship that ought to be whole and with the Lord? Uh, but rarely, in my experience, does the church actually do what is called and known as church discipline on someone who is strayed. It's uncomfortable and it's difficult to do. Uh, I know personally I should have done something years ago at, at East Shore. Um, nobody will remember, I'm not going to mention any names anyway, but there was a man who uh, had a, a very young wife carrying his child and he left that relationship and nothing was done. I, I told the deacons about it and nothing was done. 
And I didn't do anything about it. Uh, I still feel terrible, terrible guilt about that. I should have done something. But it's typical, unfortunately, in my experience, for the church to lack the courage to do what needs to be done. So it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's hard for me to look at the church of Pergamon like, oh, you, bet, you guys are just awful. It's difficult to deal with a situation like that. Um, but we're, we're told, Paul writes here to the, to the, the letter in Second Corinthians, I should say, the letter in the church of Corinth, chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what have fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father, what's today? I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. I don't have a scripture for it, but I also want to read this one from Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This is a call to believers, to present themselves their physical selves as an accept, being acceptable to God. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that is what is good and acceptable and perfect, and that is our example to the world. We should conduct, our, conduct ourselves in a way that is acceptable to our Lord. If we do that and we're good at it, we're going to get backlash and feedback. Unfortunately, it's too easy to get along, want to get along with the outside world. The Bible tells us not to be unequally yoked with them because we are unequal. And we are not to appease them by being less than what God has called us to be. I'm not suggesting we go with a bullhorn in somebody's face and, and proclaim the gospel to them. But if nothing else, your conduct should stand out amongst pe people in the world because we are different. We ought to be seen as different. That ought to be attractive to people in circumstances where other people are in anguish. Um, this is what we're called to be. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 4, this is the verse I have. This, you adulteresses, do not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. The world is literally, quite literally, at war with God. We're looking uh, in Sunday school at Revelation uh, chapter 5 today, where the scroll is introduced. And the scroll itself is the title to the planet Earth. It's a legal document. And who owns planet Earth? Who owns this whole thing but the risen Lord? But who's in temporary possession of it? The throne of Satan, in this illustration, Pergamon represents the entire planet Earth. In possession of this world, we are to be separate, different. But we have to take part in living. And that should be serve as a living witness. And that 
To make yourself immersed in the world is making yourself literally an enemy with God. Uh, Paul says in, Romans, in, in the book of Romans that we were at war with God in the flesh. But we now have peace with Him through Christ. So we are not to be at war with God, but at peace with Him through Christ. If we are doing that, then we are different than the world. We are completely separate. Now, this imagery of adulteress here is interesting as well. That's a spiritual sense. It's not about activity or behavior. That, and this was used, uh, the Lord used this with Israel a lot, that when they were blending themselves in with pagan practices around them, or in modern terms, blending ourselves with societal norms, then we are literally being unfaithful to our call. So the word adulteress or adultery there is used in a spiritual sense, not in a physical one. So that our conduct is as if we were doing that physically. Does that make sense? That this is, this is an illustration, an illustrative language. And so now comes what the Lord says needs to be done. Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So the, 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 the Lord now is speaking from a point of judgment, that he will reconcile the issue even if they won't. He's going to come and make sure that his surgical sword is going to separate. And um, the, the issue at hand, and this is, this is a quote from John MacArthur, I thought it really summed it up very well, worldliness is any preoccupation with or interest in the temporal, temporary system of life that places anything perishable before anything eternal. In other words, where is your focus? Where is our focus? Is it on the temporary things of life, the pleasures of passing sin, or is it on the permanence that is promised in God? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. And this actually deals with an issue, believe it or not, of incest in the church at Corinth. And this is Paul writing about that situation. Apparently, somebody was quite proud of their activity. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as in fact you are, uh, are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. This is a way of saying politely that you either get rid of this problem or you're all going to be rotten. In this case, rottenness is exemplified by yeast, which multiplies like a microbe. <laughs> it, it multiplies rapidly, and just a little bit goes a long way. I once saw an illustration of this point in a sermon where there was a glass of pure filtered water that the preacher put a drop of motor oil in it shook it up, and said, who wants to take a drink? He had no takers. It just takes a little to make it rotten. And when, when this kind of sin is allowed to be tolerated in, in, a, in a church, then it becomes a viral, weakening growth and needs to be dealt with. The... Um, the problem here in this church, and what, it, what, the, what the scripture says is, is that the whole church was going to be confronted by this. Because you had the people that were being worldly in their 
personal lives, and you had the rest of the church who was doing nothing about it. Again, I have, we have a community, a believing church, loving one another. Is it loving, and it's taking offense, is it loving for you not to correct a child who's going to do something that's going to harm themselves? That's going to cause destruction to the physical body or the immortal soul? Of course not. So why is it less so in the church? If we love one another, why should we look the other way when we know they're doing wrong. And this is the problem in the church at Pergamum. And this is why the Lord was going to judge the entire body uh, for this oversight. Again, like I said, it's really easy. And uh, in my study, I, uh, I found it to be uh, painful in a way in my own memory. That's why I mentioned uh, what I did. Revelation 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but who receives it. This is the promise of the Lord now. that, And it always, in, in the, these letters to the churches, it always comes out as, if you got an ear... Listen up. That's everybody. And if you're, if, and it's to the, this message is to all of us, and it's, the, the letter was to the individual churches that were real churches at a real time, but they're meant for all of us. And so the study of these churches is fascinating to see where did they do well and where did they mess up. The, the church at Smyrna has no, has no uh, uh, admonition from the Lord on it. It was all positive. Why? It, they had a terrible life, and they, they thrived. They were persecuted. They were uh, poverty-stricken. And the Lord had no condemnation of them because they persevered, gutted through it. Their lives were not Joel Osteen, rich lives, where God was going to pour blessing and, and, and money in, in them, but they just had enough faith. They were people who were living tough, dirty, gritty lives in a real city under persecution and were thriving as believers. And um, this is uh, an image which is not, we would rather have a more comfortable worldly view of what church is supposed to be like than confront a culture which is against and going worse every day against the things that we believe in. The, um, uh, I didn't mention earlier, but the, the Lord mentioned uh, Antipas who was martyred. And if, we don't know anything about this gentleman except what is mentioned in Scripture, there is a legend that Antipas had been put inside of a bronze bull and baked alive. Um, Antipas, by the way, in Greek means against everyone, against all, literally. And apparently he was a person that stood against, not fellow believers, but against the culture and paid the ultimate price for it. Why was he executed? I don't know, it doesn't say, but I know that there was a number of people in Pergamum, we know this, that were executed because they refused to carve an image of Escapolos, the uh, god of healing, and where they were executed for that. We also know that many, many believers in the Roman Empire were executed for refusing to worship the, any given Roman emperor in any given generation. Um, so what this individual paid 
with his life for, the Lord commends and mentions him by name. So the Lord knows. The Lord knows all this. Moses says this in the book of Exodus. Uh, Chapter 16, verses 32 and 33. Then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full, I have no idea how much that is, an omer full it, uh, be kept through your generations. This is manna he's talking about. Let me put this in context. Uh, omer full of it be kept throughout your generations that it may, be, may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness that I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put it, an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. The manna from heaven in Exodus is also related to the Lord Jesus. And this was to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of how God provided for them in the wilderness as as they were uh, uh, for 40 years. Uh, John chapter 6, verses 48 to 51. This is Jesus talking. So manna was the bread from heaven. Listen to what Jesus says. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So what Jesus was saying while he was still living, that he is the living manna of heaven. That what was before was a shadow of what was to come and is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. And in this imagery, you see that the manna, the hidden manna, is this element that is uh, is, uh, spoken of here. And this is an interesting thing as well. This one causes some issue with uncertainty, but a white stone with a new name on it. What is this? Lots of, apparently a white stone was a fairly common token uh, in in the day. It meant very different things, but one that really stands out, I think, really seems to be uh, quite appropriate here for as far as meaning goes. In the Roman world, the winner of an athletic contest was given a white stone as as a token of uh, victory. You also remember they would also get a crown, usually a wreath of some kind. But in this white token had a name written on it, the name of the person who won. That was a pass to the party afterwards, or a pass for different privileges. Uh, a white stone with certain diagram on it would give you privileges in, in a, a culture. It would give you an entrance. It was like having a key, so to speak, into different things. Well, the winner of the athletic contest had, had the prize was such that we, he had access to many uh, privileges. And that was a token of winning, of overcoming. And so this, new, this white stone, which they're going to be see, which we will receive in the future, with a new name on it, which really is something that we don't know what that new name will be. Uh, that's to be determined. Uh, but it's a promise of the Lord for those who are faithful in him, who have overcome and as I mentioned last week, and I know that um, Brother Steve's going to speak about this as well in the future, uh, that we are overcomers that believe in Christ because he overcame. That we, become, we are overcomers because he overcame. And the, by placing your faith, faith in him, 
the overcoming, which is granted to us because of his shed blood, is given to us as credit. So even though we struggle, even though we stumble, even though we trip, he is there to pick us back up and that we are overcomers for eternity in his eyes, those who are believed and trusted in him. In closing, I wanted to not summarize what I've talked about, but I wanted to speak about fathers. Totally different topic. The word father popped up in Scripture. and I, At the time I was picking the Scripture, I, I, I didn't think of that, but I underlined it as I was reviewing it. Because today is the day we think about fathers, and we revere our own fathers. And uh, again, Brother Steve mentioned uh, at, the, at the men's breakfast on Sunday, he was giving his own testimony and how important, even though his father was not a believer at the time, that when he became a believer himself, that the father, the physical earthly father he had, being uh, that authority figure, that guiding figure, was, was something he could hold on to when he began to learn about God the Father. And it occurred to me at the time that it's a tremendous blessing to be a father. It's a tremendous responsibility to be a father or a grandfather. See these two children up here? My, grand, my grandkids, two of them. And unfortunately, this is, what, this is what is painful. Given the worldliness that I've discussed here, there are countless young people without fathers for various reasons of conduct or casual relationships or whatever, that will never know the love of a father. And how does this infringe upon their understanding of what God the Father is to them if they've never known their own earthly father? So for those of us that have the privilege of fatherhood, I want us to think as well as those people that are living without that privilege in a troubled time, in a troubled world, in a troubled place. And as culture and worldliness progresses, it's going the wrong direction. There was a time when, when this kind of thing was rare. Unfortunately, it's all too common now. So I want to congratulate you fathers that have stood through the hard times and worked hard and, and played hard with your kids and, and been a, a great figures and a, a place of refuge for them as they're growing up. I encourage you to continue doing so even when you get old and now you've got grandkids because that's a privilege. And so with that, let me just close in a word of prayer and I'm going to, to lift up our fathers.